Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians is making slow progress toward establishing the only recreational cannabis outlet in a swath of southeastern states. It's a big economic opportunity if they can get through a line of hurdles. They're one of several tribes working against outside resistance to make marijuana a means to diversify their economy. We'll get an update on tribal cannabis progress and setbacks right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. History was made Tuesday night in the Manitoba provincial election. The new Democratic Party won a majority. And as Dan Karpinchuk reports, the province will see its first First Nations premier. Most news organizations call the elections just before midnight, declaring that the new Democrats would form the next provincial government. For weeks, opinion polls predicted an NDP win, especially in constituencies in the city of Winnipeg. Wab Canoe, the NDP leader, becomes the province's first First Nations premier and second indigenous premier. Canoe and his party campaigned on a platform of fixing the health care system, tackling the affordability crisis, and addressing crime. Here's some of Canoe's victory speech. I want to say thank you, because at the start of this campaign, our team made a decision. We chose to believe in you. We chose to believe... We chose to believe that given the choice, you, the people of Manitoba, would embrace a positive campaign focused on the future, focused on fixing health care and making the economy more affordable, and that you would reject the divisive message sent by our opponents. Canoe is a former host with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. He was first elected in 2016. The following year, he launched a successful bid for the leadership of the New Democratic Party. The leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, Heather Stephenson, conceded defeat and said she had called Canoe to congratulate him. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. A conservation group has turned an isolated ranch in north-central Washington over to the Colville tribes. Spokane Public Radio's Steve Jackson reports. The 2,500-acre Antoine Valley Ranch in Okanagan County was purchased by the Western Rivers Land Conservancy. After a fundraising campaign, the organizers have given the entire property to the Colville Confederated Tribes. Western Rivers spokesman Nelson Matthews says Antoine Creek is an important habitat for wild steelhead. The tribe will work to restore the creek flow during fish migration time and revive spawning habitats that have been choked for decades. The ranch controls water rights on the creek via a small dam several miles upstream. Colville Tribes came up with, their fisheries department came up with a unique idea to use the dam to control the timing of that water so that it could benefit uh, both the migration and the spawning of, of the threatened steelhead. A pulse of water would be sent out in the spring. The flow would attract the fish to come up that section of the creek. Later in the year, when the water starts getting low and warm, cool water would be released when the smolts are in the stream to help them survive. The tribe also plans to fence off the creek to keep cattle out and restore the riparian area and the original creek stream bed. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. 
Healing events are set to begin this weekend through Indigenous Peoples Day in Juneau, Alaska. The events surround the 1963 closure of the Walter Sobolev's Memorial Presbyterian Church to acknowledge the closure and the hurt it caused on the Juneau Indigenous community. On Saturday, a sign will be unveiled at the site of the former church. On Sunday, there will be a church service with an acknowledgement and apology from the Presbyterian Church. Indigenous Peoples Day will include a sharing of history and the presentation of checks and part partial payment of reparations. The Native Church, as it was known, served the Native community, including with his Clinket pastor, Walter Sobolev, who held his first service in 1940. The church was ordered to be closed in 1962. The closure was said to have left Sobolev and the Native community devastated. The acknowledgement, apology, and reparations include $950,000 for the harm and pain the closure caused. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by the Indian Nation Conservation Alliance's three-day conference in Las Vegas starting October 24th. Ranchers, farmers, and conservationists will discuss achieving a sustainable future. Info at inca-tcd.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling. Today's show is hosted live from the campus of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Eastern Band of Cherokee members voted overwhelmingly to legalize recreational cannabis on the Cherokee Reservation in Western North Carolina. Depending on next steps by the EBCI Tribal Council, it could be the only place in North Carolina and several surrounding states that permits the sale and use of recreational cannabis. However, at least one congressman in North Carolina is proposing withholding public funds to states and tribes that sell recreational cannabis. Today we'll talk with cannabis experts and advocates about the wins and challenges for tribal cannabis operations. We also want to hear your take on the issue. What do you think? Is the cultivation and distribution of marijuana a good business for tribes to engage in? Or do you feel tribes should focus their economic development efforts elsewhere? Share your thoughts at 1-800-996-2848. Our phone lines are now open. On the Koala Boundary in North Carolina is Forrest Parker. He's the general manager for Koala Enterprises, LLC, and a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Hi, Forrest. Great to have you on the show. Hey, how are you doing? Great to be here. From the Nez Perce Reservation in Idaho is Mary Jane Oatman. She's the founder of the Indigenous Cannabis Coalition and THC Magazine and the executive director of the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association. She is Nez Perce and a descendant of the Delaware tribe. Mary Jane, you've been on NAC before. Welcome back. Captain Navy, thanks for having me. And in Washington, D.C., we have Tom Rogers. 
Tom was named by Politico this year as one of the top 40 most powerful and impactful people on race, politics, and culture, specifically for his work on cannabis and Native Americans. He is Blackfeet. Tom, you're a familiar voice, too. Good to have you back. Thank you so much, my friend. Good to be back. Well, Forrest, I want to go ahead and start the conversation with you. Big news last month coming out of Cherokee, North Carolina, when 70% of EBCI citizens voted in favor of legalizing recreational cannabis on the Koala Boundary. What does this mean exactly? Are you now open for business? We, we're actually not open from an actual store perspective yet. Our retail um, is, is yet to come online, so the legislative policy process is kind of moving um, simultaneously here. So obviously we're very excited. It, it, it opens up obviously a lot of doors and, and doesn't really change any direction. It just means that uh, you know the magnitude of, of opportunity in the market here is, is now different than it was you know. Uh, a few weeks ago, in essence, we obviously still have a little work to do, but I think, uh, as you mentioned from the vote, I mean, was a, by most initial research, you know, 70% is super high, one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, margins in, in cannabis victory across the nation um, and throughout any country. So really exciting. It's very clear the community's behind it. Uh, it it's, I think, a vote like that, when the people have the opportunity to come and speak and it says a lot, and it, it's just it's changed the culture, everything. Just in the past two weeks, you can already feel that shift and that embracing. And I think our tribe and our communities and the surrounding communities are, are largely very excited about what cannabis is bringing, and it, it brings a whole lot more than, than medicine and revenue, you know? Mm-hmm. And Forrest, were you surprised at all by the vote, or did you anticipate it was going to be a landslide? Uh, personally, I, I'm very proud to say that I, my, I was hedging my money on 70%. And so I, I, <laughs> okay. I felt, call it lucky, guess what you will. But I, I think largely um, those of us that are, are kind of uh, involved in this initiative and in this movement and very closely connected with the community throughout this, I feel like we all felt pretty strongly that uh, it was going to pass. However, I think that uh, the 70% margin probably w- was a little higher than, than anyone, most people expected, uh, even many of us you know, that are right in the, the tip of the spear. Okay. And that 30 percent that didn't vote in favor of cannabis, what are they saying and and what are their primary concerns, Forrest? Well, you know, the truth about that is in in our specific case, uh, if I'm answering that totally honestly, then I'm my answer is I I don't know if there is one or two or even three specific things. I, I think that um, you know, when you look at the national statistics, which there are people on the call probably much more qualified than me, but when you look at those statistics, you look at the North Carolina statistics, you know, over 70% of North Carolinians in, in all recent polls, you know, show favor towards uh, cannabis and adult use cannabis. So, I, I mean, really, if you look at the nation as a whole, to me, Cherokee is really not that surprising in a way, but considering that we are from such a rural area, uh, you know, in a, in a more conservative a geographical region in the country, um, you know, in, in the Bible Belt. I mean, that's where we are in the Appalachians. Uh, it's no secret that this area, you know, cannabis and the stigmas and all those things that relate to cannabis uh, and education, it takes a minute. And so I, I would say that the, the, the 30% um, that was actually a no vote is largely, in my opinion, and I think the data supports this to a degree, uh, you know, is, is a lot of just uh, – not fully understanding what does this mean? You know, what is adult use cannabis? What's the difference in adult use 
and medicinal cannabis as far as the policy goes. I think it's more of those questions than it was, well, here's the problem with cannabis. Of course, you're going to have, you know, to each his own, and God knows we want to respect everyone's position, everyone's opinion. But Mm -hmm. I I think it's mostly education and, and, you know, just stigmas and, and moving the culture forward. All right. And I know Forest Eastern Band folks that support cannabis, uh, they've said there's plans to have the largest retail cannabis operation in the world. Is that still the case? Uh, do you foresee that huge an operation? Well, I mean, I think that um, it's not necessarily about seeing it. The, the fact of the matter is, is that the market is defined, and this market is the largest cannabis market that's remaining available you know, in, the, in the U.S. And, and when you look at it geographically, but even from North Carolina statistics alone, I mean, if you look at the last uh, few states that opened, uh, you know, um, Maryland, Missouri, you look at those populations, for example, you look at the proximity, the neighboring states, uh, the policy status in those neighboring states, you'll find that the numbers involved with this are, are, are they represent a whole lot in North Carolina it represents a whole lot I mean there's almost 12 million people in North Carolina and in 2022 North Carolina was second to only Texas in the legacy uh, market so there's over three billion dollars of illegal untested cannabis sold in the state of North Carolina in 2022 alone so right. there, there's there's a ton of indicators across the board, but this is vertical, and so it's the largest vertical system we believe uh, in that in existence because the market is so big. So we have to meet that market. And currently, we're the ones that are, are building the system. So our store is huge, uh, but so is our cultivation, and so is everything in between, extraction, okay. processing. And- now, when you say the largest market, though, what about other cities and states where marijuana is legal, like Seattle and Las Vegas? Are you comparing yourselves to those markets as well? To, to a degree, but you also have to look at the 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 the, the, the market itself. So, in, in many of those systems too, you're talking about situations where there's a lot of licensing, you know, and so you know it, it, it's it's all supply and demand. So, in this situation, we're the only license. You know, so All in right. states like that, you may have thousands of cultivators, you know, hundreds of retailers, whatever it may be. Um, and so there's a little bit of that at play, too. But this is the population base here. And and when you overlay all of the known statistics around cannabis use and those who use cannabis and, and whether it be state by state, region by region or across the country, all of our independent and third party research all aligns kind of towards the same. And so what we're having to do is we're having to build the world's largest cannabis dispensary um but on top of that we have to build all the stuff to support that ourselves because we can't bring it in from elsewhere we can't ship it in so it doesn't matter if it's one of the 200 edibles that we're creating we're doing every bit of that in the house the formulations the recipes everything from branding packaging testing uh so it's it's seed to sale with us at the highest level that anyone's ever seen it and that's just because the rest there's never been a situation in the country where there was this much kind of independence created um through sovereignty okay now forrest koala enterprises you folks hit a roadblock earlier this year when former ebci chief richie sneed he vetoed a 64 million dollar loan to support your medical marijuana operations and he cited immediate need for an accounting of the money spent to date have those financial issues been ironed out Yes, and actually, the actual funding for the initial $64 million funding wasn't vetoed. There's actually still a law standing on the books that's 100% um, law now 
that guarantees Koala $54 million in the form of a loan guaranteed by the tribe. Now, that hasn't been executed, but that was never vetoed. The, the other – the financial struggles that, that you've witnessed are all rooted from the same thing. And there's – you know, any time that you're bringing something um, this historic that has this much opportunity to, to truly um, – help dictate and prepare a tribe for the future and future generations. I mean, there's going to be a whole lot of focus, a whole lot of attention on it. And it doesn't mm -hmm. matter if we're talking tribes, we're talking states, we're talking the federal government, whoever, there's always politics. And, and there's going to be, there's going to be differing of opinions. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be trust in some areas and not in others. We're talking about cannabis and we're talking about cannabis data. So, you know, barring any personal feelings or all that, uh, you can't really borrow them because uh, what I've learned from cannabis is that there's a lot of amazing data and, and there's a lot of things. And, and But sometimes that data is hard to be trusted fully because cannabis in itself is so far removed from the, the daily strategic measures of business that we all go through. And there is so much emotional attachment around the plant and the subject matter itself, as we all know okay. that one of the biggest challenges is pushing that through. All right. Forrest, we're going to have to take a break here in just a moment. But uh, I think what you're essentially saying here is that uh, you folks don't face competition. And it reminds me of a, of a meeting I was once in years ago when, when somebody presented a business idea. They said, hey, we don't have any competition. And the response from a really sharp person in the room was, well, then you've created a product or a service for which a market doesn't exist. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back. And also, Forrest, I, I want to ask you about folks that could potentially be charged for possession when they're outside of the reservation, when they leave the reservation after perhaps purchasing marijuana there from uh, an EBCI-run dispensary. So we're going to take a short break here. We're going to come back. We've got more with Forrest Parker and our other guests. Anybody who wants to chime in here, conversation, 1-800-99-NATIVE. That's our number to call. Organizers are preparing for the first Indigenous Tattoo and Music Fest in Arizona. It's one of an increasing number of gatherings around the country focused on the traditional art of tattooing. We'll find out what those at the festival have in store and how traditional tattoos differ from those at your average tattoo shop. That's on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are talking about the Eastern Band of Cherokee and other tribal cannabis operations. Please join the conversation. Where does your tribe stand on the legalization of marijuana? And just as important, where do you stand on the legalization of marijuana? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And a reminder, you can always listen back to our shows on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, 
and Apple Podcasts. We've got Forrest Parker on the line right now. He is in Cherokee, North Carolina. He's the general manager for Koala Enterprises, and uh, he's given us a rundown and some updates on the tribe's cannabis uh, industry and their dispensary updates. And as I mentioned, Forrest, before we went into the break there, customers could face the risk of being charged for possession outside of the reservation. What are your thoughts on that? Do you expect that that could uh, diminish business going forward? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, the fact of the matter is, is that, that there are political boundaries, you know, and, and fortunately, you know, for us, all we control is, is what we can control. So uh, you are right. Currently, when, when customers do, uh, possession will be, is currently legal uh, on boundary and not off. So that's something that customers must be aware of. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of conversations you can have around this. I mean, but if you look at every state market that's ever open and you look at every state report, even to this day, you know, you'll find that the most powerful stores in the nation are border stores, and there's no secret as to why. I mean, so, you know, mm-hmm. that's something that, unfortunately, um, I think people do have to think about. Um, but as we all know, I mean, you know, as we sit here now, you've got, what, cannabis banking that's hitting the Senate again. Um, you know, you have the, the rescheduling that has been discussed and continues to be discussed that everyone expects to come. So as the nation moves toward uh, embracing the real science um, behind cannabis, uh, so will communities. And, and we, we do, we are in a very rural, pretty conservative community in America. And, and you know, it, it is kind of independently up to some of our neighboring sheriffs um, that, that we have great relationships with to dictate and decide, you know, how, how they handle this in what ways, you know. So, so it, some of it is completely out of our control. But um, me personally, as an enrolled member, you know, my expectation would be uh, to continue to move forward as great partners as we have. We know the state of North Carolina uh, is in, in very high levels of support. Uh, you know, as you saw, SB3 didn't pass this year, but we all know that, that you know, that, that thing has continued to come down the line. So North Carolina is right there uh, and could be the next state, you know, coming, um, you know, early next year. So there's a lot of things that, that are going to happen that will happen, and no one can kind of predict that. But it's already, you know, uh, kind of uh, decriminalizing the state of North Carolina. And so a lot of those things that have happened have, have opened up the doors for us to be here and, and, and not have to worry too much downstream on that, honestly. So. All right. And Forrest, North Carolina Congressman Chuck Edwards, uh, he represents the call of boundary in, in this bill mm-hmm. to punish the tribe for pursuing marijuana sales. Is he getting mm-hmm. any traction with that idea? Do you see that as a big risk? Well, I no, I personally, as a tribal member, I do not. Obviously, you know, uh, much respect um, to the congressman. You know, obviously, everyone's entitled to their position, and as is he, you know, and, and he, he's it's his job to represent, you know, his district the way he sees fit. But as you can see from probably many of the Facebook comments and posting from our tribe, as you can see from uh, former Chief Sneed's comments regarding uh, Mr. Edwards, then you can see, I think, the general spirit is, hey, that's great if you have those concerns, but um, that's not really the way to go about them. And I would, nobody, at least with me, I, I don't fully understand what the goal is there because, you know, trying implementing legislation of that magnitude implicates so many tribes, so many ways and so many states. I mean, it doesn't matter how you measure that from tax revenue to medicinal benefits to sovereignty. There's just so many things about, you know, representative Edwards comments and stuff that I think, 
um, conflict with the spirit of sovereignty and the spirit of, of tribal relationships and, and what we're doing. So uh, to, to us, uh, we're not talking about it really here. I mean, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody here All is right. really talking about it. In last month's tribal elections also voted in a new EBCI chief. You have several new council members. What are your thoughts on this change of leadership? Could it affect Koala Enterprises and your marijuana operations? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously it tremendously could affect us, and, and but we're very excited. I mean, we're very excited to, to – we've already hit the ground running uh, with the new administration, both in the legislative branch and the executive branch. Um, I feel like that our tribe is going to have more continuity than it's had in, in years. Uh, I think that uh, especially post-adult uh, use vote, um, you have more continuity, uh, more alignment across the board. And I think now you're going to see Qual Enterprises and the Eastern Man of Cherokee, its owners, um, align and collaborate together at the highest level that you that we've ever done and move this thing uh, responsibly forward so that we can get the most out of it for our people because what we're already seeing um, from the socioeconomic uh, status or aspects of this uh, far far exceed the revenue or even the medicinal aspects of cannabis for us. I mean, what we're seeing now mm-hmm. with employment, um, we're changing lives through cannabis, and it has nothing to do with medicine or revenue. I mean, right. and that's the part of, that's really impacting our tribe, I think, in the most surprising ways. Forrest, one more question before we go on to our next guest. And uh, so what is the current status of the dispensary? You're not open for recreational. That has some more legal hurdles to get through. What about medicinal? Are you open? Are you selling any cannabis on the boundary right now? And if not, when do you anticipate those sales to begin? We we are not. Uh, we have been building infrastructure to support this. We're processing. We're starting to package. So we, we've been moving towards a late 2023 opening this entire time, basically, or at least since January. So uh, you can be looking for us to be breaking the doors open um, probably sometime around the first of the year. All right. Breaking the doors open. You heard it here on Native America Calling. EBCI uh, dispensary uh, will be up and running perhaps before the end of the year. Forrest, really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing these insights. Take care. Thank you so much. Let's go ahead and bring Mary Jane into our conversation now. Uh, Mary Jane, what's your thought here? Um, Do you think other tribes interested in cannabis should follow the EBCI lead here and legalize on their reservation, even if they're in states that strictly oppose marijuana? What's your thought? I must say I'm applauding, you know, the nation's sovereign stance and position in a prohibition state like North Carolina. I'm similarly situated here in Idaho, and I know that the um, when you're in a situation where the tribal state relations are um, contentious, uh, especially around an issue like cannabis, uh, it does make it quite difficult. I know that Idaho tribal leaders have been very cautious moving forward uh, because the state attorney general here is very uh very much uh, oppositional to the the cannabis reform moving forward in this state. I do think that it's imperative that tribes start to work together more collectively uh, to protect uh, our rights in this area for health and economic development. And I do, I do think that tribes in states where there are prohibition laws still on the books need to assess what's in the best interest of 
our communities. And that's really where, uh, again, this goes back to that 70% um, majority vote by the citizens of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, um, because we are really in a position to um, do something in a big way. And uh, you know, I hate to use the word monopoly, but you know, it's very, very rare that tribes are in a position of having a monopoly in an emerging industry, potentially multi-billion, some people say trillion dollar, if you start to add in the research and development um, you know, budgets that will be released once descheduling uh, does happen um, for, for cannabis research. Uh, there is I mean, a very long-term strategic play in addition to the short-term economic development that can happen in cannabis. All right. And Mary Jane, you've got your boots on the ground there. You're, you're working at the national level. You communicate with tribes all across the country. And of course, there's over 570 federally recognized tribes. Do you have any gauge at all in terms of all the federally recognized tribes out there about how many or what percentage are in support of at some point legalizing marijuana and what percentage are against it? Do you know? That's something that we look forward to doing at the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association is increasing the data, working with our other national partner organizations, because that data is missing right now to get that pulse check across Indian country. Um, we don't know if, you know, some tribes may be uh, leaning into it, watching cannabis tribes through a fishbowl and want to know how they can also participate in the industry and it's really um, the lack of data uh, is one of the reasons why the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association was formed. So our tribal, elected tribal leaders can make more informed decisions. But aside from that, um, you know, there are very, I mean, considering the number of tribes, you know, to realize that the, we have probably less than 100 tribes active in the recreational or medicinal um, cannabis space um, including cultivation and processing. So we, we really do not have uh, a lot of tribes entering into the business, um, and it's, it's out of fear. A big a part of why tribes are not moving forward is it's just there was so much stigma. And a lot of our, a lot of our elders, they were um, traumatized by that past policies uh, the harm that was caused by those policies and the reality that in Indian country right now, it is still happening. We still have people being incarcerated in federal pr prisons for transportation, interstate transportation, um, you know, trying to fill the medicinal void that's in their community through uh, untested black market industries. And that's really what we want to get away from because, you know, the market does exist for the Eastern Band of Cherokee. Unfortunately, right now, it is an illicit black market. And when federal legalization continues, it puts tribes in, at greater risk of those types of depredations from bad actors from the outside, from the illicit cannabis marketplace. Mm -hmm. Well, Mary Jane, let's go ahead and take our first caller of the day. We have Clifton, who is listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico on KUNM. Hello, Clifton. What's on your mind? Uh, you know, Sean, to your point about um, the uh, uh, 
product being illegal outside of the Eastern Band. I'm just curious if Mary in Idaho has any experience that shows whether law enforcement is interested and motivated enough to target people leaving uh, dispensaries or not. Thank you. All right. Mary Jane, you want to respond to Clifton's comment about perhaps law enforcement just uh, being right there when people leave the reservation or leave a dispensary and just ready to make an arrest just like that? Uh, there's a little area kind of known as the gauntlet uh, going back and forth uh, from the Nez Perce Indian Reservation to the three recreational retail dispensaries that are just a stone's throw away from our reservation. Our geographical homelands include the state of Washington, uh, but our uh, treaty uh, boundary area um, now, does, our 1855 treaty boundaries uh, excuse me, our 1863 treaty boundaries uh, cut off at, near the Idaho state line uh, into Washington. And so while we have that you know, access, we do see an increase in enforcement in certain areas, um, but it's not what people think. There are not cops sitting outside of dispensaries writing down license plates and, and calling it okay. over. That is, I guess, just inflated reefer madness. Um, there is a very, <laughs> a very large interstate transport, uh, you know, from consumers, from the retail side. And I think that there, in some areas where you are in that border state, the law enforcement, they see the positive impact of cannabis retail that happens. And so when they have less drunk drivers on the road and, you know, there's other other um, social things like uh, for, uh, Mr. Parker was talking about earlier, there's other social harmony that kind of starts to happen that needs to be backed by data as well. But no, um, I, we don't see it on this side, but I can speak to an experience. I was just actually returning home from doing a, a multi-reservation cannabis tour through Minnesota and uh, down through North Dakota, South Dakota, um, visiting the uh, Lower Sioux Tribe's uh, first hemp home uh, pro uh, project development. And on my way back through Idaho, um, the Montana State Hemp Festival was taking place right along the border. And so as I pulled into Idaho, there were 11 law enforcement officers in a five-mile stretch, and they were doing huge emphasis patrol. Uh, so I do know that, that they target events like that. So if there, are, if there are large events, they're definitely targeted. But on the day-to-day -day recreational retail purchase, it ain't no big thing, really. It ain't no big thing. All right, Mary Jane. Let's take another caller now. We have Sean listening in Whitehorse, South Dakota on KIPI. Hello, Sean. How you doing? Hey, Sean. Um, cool name. Yeah, for sure, brother. Um, yeah, I, I would like to speak on uh, on on some of the cannabis I issues here on, on, on our reservation. We, we just uh, legalized um, a, a lot of it here. Reservation. And so we're kind of just getting up on our feet and um, we, we live uh, in South Dakota. So uh, our neighbors to the South of base, they're getting going to Crow Creek in the reservation. He's there, uh, you know, All right. And so that, Sean, that, we're that having some, having a having a little bit of a hard time time hearing you on the air here. Uh, maybe you could get a little better connection and and call back. But uh, I, I want to talk to to Mary Jane about South Dakota because South Dakota is another state uh, in which marijuana is illegal on the state level. 
but it's uh there are some tribes that are engaged in marijuana businesses what updates are what can you tell us about south dakota mary jane Oh, I'm happy to say that I am a medicinal card holder from the Flandreau Sanity Nation. Uh, I was uh, had the opportunity to uh, visit uh, the tribal nations, uh, Native Nations cannabis uh, dispensary and facility, and I wanted to see what that whole process was like for um, on the re- uh, you know recreational retail side, or excuse me, on the medicinal side, because it is a medicinal dispensary uh, to to go through that whole process of. Um, acquiring um, a medical cannabis card um, because most of the experiences that I've, I've seen are, are recreational retail. And I, I see uh, uh, that is really where tribes have uh, have to take that position in, in recreation or in uh, medicinal as opposed to, I mean, I think that it should be happening parallel. Um, tribes can do medical and recreational at the exact same time. Um, and South Dakota, you know, that's that's why they aligned with that type of a, a program. Uh, if they if they opened up recreationally, I'm sure that they would um, still see some great success. Not that they haven't already, but it's um, there's a lot of people that don't want to go through that whole medical process. Uh, but they're in a, in a unique market niche there in um, in their um, in their geographic region. And uh, South Dakota is, uh, again, one of those states where I think that the uh, community right. sentiments are, are Mary in Jane, we're going to have to take – okay, great. We're going to take a short break here. We come back, we're going to have Tom Rogers talk with us more about uh, policies and laws related to tribal cannabis. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at aecf.org. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are getting insights into the future of tribally owned cannabis operations. Join this conversation today, 1-800-996-2848. We've still got our phone lines open. And let's bring Tom Rogers into our conversation now. He is a lobbyist. He's based in Washington, D.C. And Tom, appreciate you waiting in the wings here. And uh the elephant in the room that we have not really addressed yet on the show is the fact that cannabis is still illegal on the federal level. So what do tribes need to be mindful of over that fact? And what are the challenges that they face with it still being illegal on the federal level? Well, there it might be. I mean, there's that overarching theme that it is illegal on the federal level. But as we speak at this moment, there's a shaping of the legislation and a shaping of the narrative, Sean, is um, you cannot wait until um, the gavel goes down in either the House or the Senate and the president signs the legislation into law. I've been in this space now since almost for 12, 13 years. And in that, in that time, a colleague and I, uh, Amy Rising and I, were able to secure the passage of the Medical Medicinal Cannabis Research Act, and it was uh, signed by the president into law, the first cannabis legislation in, in law in, in the entire United States history. That's already passed. Now we're working on veterans' cannabis research legislation. That'll pass the Senate, and we'll get it to the president. 
So this this that legislation, when it comes to to Native American Indigenous people, is being shaped as we speak. I'm working with two congressmen, one uh, a wonderful congressman, Congressman Blumenauer in the House, Congressman Dave Joyce in the House, um, also working in the Senate, the, the SAFER Act, which allows financial institutions to participate in the cannabis industry. That just passed out of the Senate Banking Committee. It had numerous mm-hmm. protections in there for our indigenous people. So, yes, uh, um, people are kind of anchoring to a um, the optics of, of years ago, and that's what we, uh, and Mary Jane has faced this, you know, education is not seeing new things, it's seeing with new eyes. And um, the momentum, the momentum, we're having an industry here which will dwarf the size of the NFL within five years. We're talking about anywhere upwards of 30 to $50 billion. Uh, we have states that have $5 billion in annual sales now. Uh, this is the fastest-growing industry. It's growing at a percentage of about 14.9% a year annually. Annually. This will make Indian gaming look small. Okay. And forgive me for saying but, that. But, it's a, it's but a, there's a window of opportunity here, though, Tom, right? Like, yeah. um, I mm-hmm. mean, that's one thing that tribes have been clear about. I mean, I know former chief of the EBCI, Richard Sneed, said, look, mm-hmm. uh, we've got this great potential, but we can't wait forever on mm-hmm. this. We've got to mobilize. So no. what's that timeline? Oh, you're looking at anywhere with, with financial uh, institutional relief here uh, and rescheduling next year. We're entering into a period now within the next, and especially with the upcoming elections of November of next year. There will be significant momentum before the, the elections of next year, the presidential race in, in November of 2024. Uh, the administration is looking at rescheduling cannabis from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 3 or 4. So it is... Um, the momentum is all at our back. The wind's at our back. And okay. you cannot wait. I've been in this business for 30 years, Sean. You cannot wait to say, oh, now the legislation signed into law. You have to be at the table <laughs> shaping it, shaping it. Right, right. Well, Tom, but what happens, though? Let's say the feds just go ahead and give the green light and it's open season and the floodgates open. What does that mean for tribes when, when they're suddenly going to face so much other competition? Are they going to have enough of a head start to be able to maintain that competitive advantage that we've talked about so far on the show? Well, like I said earlier, you know, Sean, uh, a lot of life is, you know, this country was built on stories. Like today, you're telling a story. Um, it's, that's also shaping the narrative. And uh, indigenous people have been using cannabis and psychedelics for over 10,000 years. It's our story. It's our organic product. It is not pharmaceutical story. It is a natural organic plant. And we've been utilizing it for tens of thousands of years. Have we? I mean, what, 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 I mean, which tribes were using it? Because I'm curious. I mean, I, I've heard people I'll, mention I'll that before, back. but. Hmm? Uh, go down which to, tribes? Well, I would say the indigenous people of uh, South America, the Bolivians, the Colombians. Okay. That has okay. been better. But that in North America, in, in North America, no. like like the 570 recogn- federally uh, recognized tribes that we're talking about today, yeah. do they have? A, do any of those tribes have a long cultural and traditional history with cannabis that you're describing? Uh, well, not not of, not of the 10,000 years figure, but I can assure you with with the history of what we've done, and especially as it moved eastward into the Great Plains, we're looking at a history that certainly, Sean predates what we have here is pharmaceutical companies knowing the profit um uh, how should i say this pressures that they're under 
they see this massive movement into cannabis and psychedelics, and they're trying to position themselves. And I, I, this, the optics of this, and I know we anchor far too often, Sean, to the Reagan years of um, just say no. And, and if you look at the history of cannabis and you go back into the he- hearings in the 1930s where alcohol and cannabis diverged in their federal treatment, that is extremely instructive. And what Native people, this is about healing. This is not about going out there and partying and getting, you know, this is about healing. We just, did you see that this, we have an all-time rate of suicide in this country? The CDC numbers just came out yesterday. Mm-hmm. All-time right. 49,000 people killed themselves last year by suicide. You know that suicide now is the second largest cause of death for our Native yeah. youth. We just did a show we last month healing. on that. Healing. And that's what both of these, these are organic plants. They are based upon, and when you have, you know, assisted therapy, when you have, you educate yourself on this, and every person and every tribe is entitled to their own sovereign position. No doubt about that. This is an individual and tribal decision. But the healing potential is astronomical because we are, we are, we've allowed the pharmaceutical industry to, to flood our, our TVs um, and our lives with these incredible medications, which have made, look at the opioid crisis once again. And when, and this is a, a very telling statistic for you, Sean, when cannabis enters a state market, opioid re- usage declines by 20 to 30%. Now, if we can, we can save one life because somebody is okay. over-medicating on opioids, that, now that is the healing potential. When you can marry healing potential with creating economic development for tribes, and tribes cannot be the last like we were on so many economic development efforts and healing efforts. You have... Okay. Uh, Tom, I'm sorry, Tom. Okay. I just I, I want to bring it back to, to more focused on, on the advocacy work you do and, and the tribes and some of these issues we're talking about today with legalities. And I, and I know you mentioned you compared this, uh, the, the burgeoning cannabis industry to gaming. And, and I think that there are some really strong parallels between cannabis and when tribes started gaming back now more than 30 years ago. So have tribes learned lessons from that experience that they can now apply to marijuana businesses? Oh, absolutely. The template is, uh, thank you, Sean. That's a very, the template is, is in, entirely apt. Um, you have a major economic development initiative across the country, the fastest growing industry in the United States. The lessons that we learned, and I was there when I worked with NIGA, when NIGA was run out of the back, back of a Cadillac in a trunk for Gay Kingman and Tim Wapato at the National League Gaming Association. True story. That said, we have to learn from the interaction with the states. We cannot allow states to use this as a cash flow slush fund. We have to assert our own tribal sovereignty. We have to, to yes, we have to enter into agreements with both you know, the federal government and with the states, but we cannot allow, not allow to have happen what happened with Indian gaming, where the states and the attorney generals and specific governors used the, the economic pressures to force us to the table to use mm-hmm. us to balance their own budgets, to invade our sovereignty. We should be able to regulate ourselves. And we even had gaming interests, commercial gaming interests, who said, well, Native Americans can't even regulate themselves. That is not true. We've proven that with Indian gaming. So the template is incredibly apt. And the lessons we learned so we don't replicate the mistakes we made 
and the pressures we came unto is we we have we are involved in multiple states coming up in the upcoming elections. That said, we should assert our Native American sovereignty when it comes to our own ability to tax the revenue. We should assert our own Native American sovereignty when it comes to regulation. And that okay. and we have to be very aggressive in that. And we should also I what was that is not let the NIGC or the BIA involve themselves in any enforcement action. We're working on legislation to prevent that. The BIA and the NIGC have no role when it comes to cannabis issues and Native Americans. Okay. So, Tom, do you see tribes completely regulating their own cannabis businesses on their own independently? Is that the, is that the vision, the model? Well, I would love... I would love to have a day in my life when I can uh, I would see a the realization that we are totally regulated internally. Now I know as this emerging industry occurs, you know the FDA will be involved, but we that is another thing I'm working on is making sure that the FDA the FDA is not culturally aware of Native Americans historically, geographically, culturally. And so knowing that landscape we have to assert, just like we did in the Banking Committee with the SAFER Act emerging from the uh, Banking Committee just the other day, we need to make sure that the FDA is – we have our supporters, our champions, and we need to educate the FDA that when it comes to Native Americans, we have the intelligence, the education, and the experience to regulate ourselves. Yes, we'll interact with you as much as is required by federal law, but we as people, the ultimate Assertion of sovereignty is exercising sovereignty, and we will not allow people to sit there and demean us and diminish us. Like I said, commercial industry, when they came after us, they said, well, you're just not educated or sophisticated enough to regulate yourself. That is how the commercial gaming industry tried to attack us. And, and Tom, what's interesting, you know, when I look back, at, specifically in New Mexico, and I remember when those first compacts were signed, and and the tribes in New Mexico specifically really out-negotiated the state on those compacts, and, and I don't think the state anticipated what a huge moneymaker gaming would be. And then when the tribes really started making money and really doing well, the state steps in and says, hey, hey, we're, we're going to have to rewrite these contracts, these compacts, we're going to have to redo it. It's not fair, right? And, and they, they reneged on those previous compacts. But I wonder now, I mean, it seems like states have have learned like hey you know we some states really missed out and they they failed to negotiate compacts that that they were happy with with gaming and i, I just wonder if they're going to be really mindful now and pay a lot more attention and, and be a lot more safeguarded with tribes and, and cannabis and really work to prevent that because obviously they don't want tribes to make tons of money when states don't what's your thought on that no it, there it is a test of wills and that is why you need to be in the game you need to assert your sovereignty. You need to assert yourself politically. You need to organize. And we will have governors, governors who don't uh, historically don't care for us, governors who, uh, who have their own political agenda, attorney generals specifically who have their own political agenda, and le- learning the lessons of what we learned in Florida under, and California on Cabazon and what the, what the governors and the attorney generals did to us with the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and involved themselves in our own internal sovereign decisions. And like I said, once again, try to use this as a slush fund. We need to be mindful. You shouldn't use history to imprison you, but you should use it to inform you. And we need to be aggressive, aggressive to monitor the actions and fight back against those states and attorney generals who seek to use us to advance their own careers and their own agenda. 
All right. Now, Tom, we are winding down the show. So if you could briefly just comment, there are also some of these gray areas with regard to banks mm -hmm. that don't want to mm -hmm. service cannabis mm -hmm. operations right. or some of these taxation issues. What do we need to know? What do our listeners need to know about those issues as we wind down the show? Well, my friends, just simply uh, Google the SAFER Act, S-A-F-E-R, SAFER Act. It just emerged from the Senate Banking Committee about a week ago, the SAFER Act of 2023. It's heading to the Senate floor as soon as the majority leader schedules it for floor debate. And look at how far we've come. And that is an alignment, and tribes are mentioned repeatedly throughout that piece of legislation. And that's what I talk about. You need to shape the narrative and shape the legislation. You wait around until it's all enacted into federal law and you get what you get. You have to be at the table to shape it. All right. Tom, really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, Mary Jane, I want to go back to you uh, as we wind down the show. A any other thoughts, any sh comments you'd like to share before we wind down and wrap up? Yes, I just wanted to um, pipe in and, and just concur with Tom. Um, it reminds me of, you know, the sovereignty that many tribes regulate for something that is heavily regulated by the federal government, which is explosive. Yet there are exemptions for tribes to regulate their own fireworks industries. So this isn't really rocket science. Like Tom said, we need to be organized. We definitely need to be at the table so that we're not on the menu. And the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association, we want tribes more organized to call for descheduling as opposed to rescheduling. And safer banking, I'm definitely uh, excited to see so much tribal provision. A little concerned to see uh, tribes falling under uh, states in some regards in the Safer Banking Act language. But um, November 1st through the 3rd, um, the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association is hosting our second annual uh, Cannabis Policy Summit, uh, www.indigenouscannabis.org, uh, to learn more information on our website. All right. Forrest, uh, if you're there... What can you tell us as we wrap up? 30 seconds. Any closing thoughts? Just I'm so thankful to be here. Really appreciate everyone. I, I So uh, inspiring to hear that. I mean, I agree with everything that was said. I, I'm so thankful, Mary Jane Tom. You guys are all spot on. Everything you're saying, I can sit and think and feel how it's rolling out here. Uh, so many things that have been mentioned. Um, Cherokee is, is really a proven grounds for a lot of those. And the last thing I just want to say is, uh, in addition to all the absolutely correct and accurate things that have been said, um, I, I'm really excited for tribes to start digging into some of the data that's not um, on the top of the, 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 the fun radar that comes along with cannabis, and that's that socioeconomic stuff. And we're talking about getting people off opioids. That's a fact on our reservation. But in addition, there are people downstream that won't be opioids, because, but won't be on opioids because their parents, their families have careers and opportunities right. now where we're not putting right. square pegs around holes, right? It's a All beautiful right. thing. All right. We have wrapped, wrapped up the show now. We're out of time, but uh, big thanks. Forrest Parker, Mary Jane Oatman, and Tom Rogers. Updates and insights on tribal cannabis, past, present, and future. Please tune in to NAC again tomorrow, and we'll take a look at revitalizing indigenous tattoos. Until then, have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk again soon. OCO, protect your health and wellness. Help your family and community stay healthy by making sure you and your loved ones are up to date on vaccines. RSV, seasonal flu, and COVID-19 booster vaccines are available now. 
For more information on vaccines, contact your Indian health care provider or visit vaccines.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the ninth annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.